right. Welcome back to Rangers. We have a very special episode for you today. Uh, first of all, this is uh, Deranged DeJore, and we are two deranged lawyers talking about deranged topics, and we've been covering the New Mexico prison riot for the past couple of episodes um, because it's such a huge topic, and we felt like it needed to get the justice that it deserved. So, and I, I think I could talk about this topic forever, to be honest with you, but you know who really could talk about this topic forever, who we got to talk to today? Uh, Our guest host. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and by the way, uh, that's Raven. I'm Pisha. And we've got a guest host this week that I'm really super excited about. Yeah, we, we did good. Um, we were uh, honored to have Mark Donatelli, who has been um, a prison reform lawyer uh, since the 1970s, uh, was involved with this prison since 1976. Uh, and so he was a public defender at the time and then uh, switched over after the riots um, and did some special defense during the uh, prosecutions of the rioters and then went on to uh, start a firm of Rostein Donatelli, which is one of the bigger firms in New Mexico, and they do a lot of civil rights practice, um, and namely for uh, Mr. Donatelli, um, he's done uh, the majority of the work on the Duran Consent Decree, which is the class, class action lawsuit involving the prisoners uh, who were in the prison. Uh, Dwight Duran, I guess, was not in the prison at the time that the riot occurred, but they were all part of this prison where the riot ultimately occurred. Um, right. And, and Dwight Duran was a key negotiator throughout the prison. He wasn't in the prison, like you said. Wasn't he released like a day or like a week or so before something like that? Mm -hmm. And he was released, but because he had so much credibility with the prisoners, um, he was brought in for negotiations. So that's why it's called the Duran Consent Decree. It's after this guy, Dwight Duran, who was so key to the negotiations. Right. So, yeah. So we're going to talk to Mark Donatelli today, uh, who's going to tell you about what it was like uh, being one of these attorneys for the prisoners who were charged with these crimes, um, as well as a whole host of other topics, uh, some of which we were going to cover and some of which just came up. And so I think that um, it's going to be a really fun, uh, interesting interview for you guys. Um, we're really, like I said, super stoked to have had Mark Donatelli on. Um, we're super thankful for him and all of the wisdom that he gave to us today. So I think without further ado... Um, first of all, again, thank you so much for being here. Um, you know, for those of our listeners that don't know Mark Donatelli and your how could you not? <laughs> yeah, and your illustrious career. Do you mind just giving a brief um, summary of who you are? Sure. Um, I uh, I started doing prison work in, in um, New Hampshire when I was in law school, uh, and was representing prisoners on uh, in post conviction uh cases and then i came to new mexico my last semester of law school in uh 76 and uh, the public defender that i was working for then bob rostein and c farber had me working on habeas corpus cases out of the penitentiary new mexico uh, mostly on conditions cases and um you know I, as a law student i was kind of like i couldn't believe what i was seeing this is in 1976 um, what the the treatment of mental health prisoners in the whole and that sort of thing. So then I, after I became a public defender, I did a brief stint in Carlsbad and Albuquerque and then came back to Santa Fe in 78, um, was the district defender in 78 when the riot occurred. And then uh, when the riot occurred, our office was responsible for the 125 guys facing murder charges out of the, the uh, penitentiary riot. And I spent three years defending those capital cases um, and went into private practice and immediately got appointed as uh, one of the plaintiff's counsel representing the Duran class. And I'm still in the Duran lawsuit that continues. Um, to Forever. Yeah, yeah, it's I'm ongoing. Of, um, of other 
prison work around the country, mostly involving riots or um, Bureau of Prisons homicides. So I've been involved in, in prison litigation, both in civil uh, litigation and in um, uh, defending capital cases around the country. Well, and you've already kind of mentioned this. Um, we, as you know, have been talking about the New Mexico State Penitentiary riot of 1980 over the past couple weeks. And um, you spoke to this already, but what was your role in the aftermath and how did you come to be involved? <laughs> I remember the morning of February 2nd very clearly because I had gone to a death penalty seminar in Atlanta our death penalty statute went into effect in July of, of 79. And we knew there were going to be capital cases sooner or later. So I'm driving into this seminar in the dark in Atlanta. And on the radio, they say that the prisoners have taken over the prison. And I was head of the Santa Fe Public Defender Office. And I was like, no, nah, that's not, can't be. We've been representing guys on cases um, for the last um, two or three years there. I called the prison and it rang, rang, rang. And uh, uh, just couldn't believe what I was seeing on the news and then came back here and sadly uh, figured out right away that we had clients killing clients. Um, the news accounts were all accurate about what took place. Um, there was a lot more that came out uh, eventually, but um, right back then, the state was awash in oil money for the first time and uh, the, the state decided that they were going to spend $3 million prosecuting cases. They created a special prosecution office. And they were going to create a special public defender office that I was going to be the head of uh, and gave us over a million dollars to defend the cases. Um, so we had resources and um, immediately started um, finding out, well, they shipped, as you probably know, they shipped a lot of guys out of uh, the, the penitentiary was just unusable for a short period of time. And they got some of the cell blocks operating again, cell block three, cell block four, and not four right away, uh, three and six, I think, brought some of the guys back. Um, they Gradually over time, I think they started using the dormitories again. But um, it was... Uh, it was absolute chaos for a good uh, 18 months after the riot as they were bringing guys back. Um, there were nine murders in the first 18 months after um, the, the prison was retaken. And um, for the first time since 1956, I think, we had two correctional officers killed in two separate incidents, one in cell block three and one across the hall in cell block five, I believe it was. Um, so, so much for the death penalty uh, protecting corrections officers. Uh, and as, as head of the defense effort, I would go out to the prison for meetings. Um, they would actually give us a room in the basement of cell block three, and I couldn't believe the security or lack thereof. I mean, I, we had... Um, uh, representatives of the cases that we would meet with. And we, I don't know if we, I think we had a Duran meeting um, in cell block three, but I remember meeting with a bunch of prisoners one afternoon when um, they just opened all of the doors in cell block three and sent guys out to the yard together. This is supposed to be a restrictive housing operation because these were all guys who were targets, uh, targets of committing homicides during um, the riot, right? Uh, and at the same time, the state is trying to make deals with some of the same guys. And guess what happened? Um, some of the suspected witnesses were getting uh, murdered out in the yard. Uh, just, I mean... So you know, this we, was happening remember, before the riot? No, this I'm talking about the period after the riot. I'm saying oh, the, got it. the continuing chaos afterwards that they were bringing guys back before the, I mean, you think they would learn their lesson to have a secure operation. Right. A secure, uh, uh, correctional officer practices. But no, I mean, you know, you had 33 guys that died during the riot, nine more in the first 18 months after that. What were you doing bringing guys back when the place wasn't really safe to be operated? And 
you hadn't figured out who the, the staff were that you, you had some of the same middle managers um, running the operation that were responsible for the riot. And they were in charge of deciding who would go to the yard and who would go to the yard together. I mean, we had some horrible murders of guys being stabbed multiple times while they were handcuffed behind their backs because the guards put known enemies in cages together. I mean, it's just so there's nine horrible murders, including two correctional officers in the, the first 18 months. And then for the the rest of the three years, we were um, defending cases as they as they brought the indictments. Right. Fortunately, all successfully. And what were some of the difficulties in in doing the defense work of uh, these inmates in particular? I mean, I guess when I look at it, um, you know, for a lot of the guys, you're talking about the death penalty being back on the table, but there there wasn't a whole lot. They're already in for a significant amount of time. So what, you know, more time would actually, would that accomplish, essentially? Well, that's true, but you know, this was the new shiny object um, for prosecutors to try to get um, the death penalty for these cases. And the prosecution, buoyed by the $3 million, told the legislature that they had identified 125 capital targets. I mean, can you imagine, I mean, that's talk about grandiosity and BSM. I mean, really? It's like Texas level. (laughs) And especially knowing what, you know, there was just just no secret that the prison had been badly operated and that um, so many, I mean, I will tell you, we did a lot of of of, um, attitude polling in Santa Fe County. We were trying to figure out, should we get a a change of venue? Uh, Because, I mean, I was telling you about the escapes. Um, people in Santa Fe were traumatized by the escapes that took place. I mean, it was pretty regular um, occurrence that you would hear a helicopter hovering up in the air. And it wasn't like Channel 7 helicopter. It was a National Guard or state police helicopter that people, oh, shit, people are on the loose out of the prison again, right? So Santa Fe was just sort of traumatized by that. And then the riot itself, and we thought, you know, do we really want to be here? But because of the press coverage, we found out right away that Santa Fe jurors knew more about the mismanagement, um, the in, incredibly deplorable conditions um, at, at, the, at the penitentiary that were responsible for the state of mind of the guys that were, were involved. I'm sure there were jurors who thought, yeah, well, you know, just kill them all. What the hell? But um, we just knew with decent jury selection, we'd find people that, that we're open to considering the conditions as, as mitigation um, in the cases. So um, the, the most difficult part was that, I mean, on one hand, there were no videos of what took place. Uh, but on the other, the, the state had stacked the deck with informants. Um, this was, it, it it, it took a lot of investigation to find out how the state had identified the informants and figured out who they thought were reliable witnesses, right, to call um, in in the uh, the cases. But we found out early on that what they had done. I mean, you're familiar with cell block four in particular. That's that oh, yeah. was the snitch unit, right? Where out of the 33, there were nine or 11 of the homicides took took place. Really there, gruesome right? ones. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, those ones took place. Uh, and I mean, let's face it, there were guys, I mean, that was one of the security breakdowns. There were guys who had testified to put guys in prison for life. And when they took over the prison, what do you? Th- they knew they were across the hall in cell block four, right? Um, and yeah, those were the most gruesome. But Still, it was a question of how do you prove who did what? I mean, you, had, you know who the suspects were, but there were 1,100 prisoners um, at, at the time of the riot that you had to sort through for uh, the, the, the people to face the death penalty. So what they did was they put all the guys that were the survivors in cell block four on buses and some suspected informants, and they took them to Las Cruces. And had them in a gymnasium and the correction secretary and some people from the state police 
talk to this group of witnesses. I mean, you know, making no effort to separate witnesses at all. And um, the, the, the reports we got from prisoners were consistent. They came in and they said, you know, we know that all of you or most of you were in cell block four and we know what you saw. We have two buses sitting outside waiting for the people that are leaving this room. Those who saw something are going to get on a bus and be flown to a brand new prison in Talladega, Alabama. Um, if you didn't see anything, then you have nothing to worry about. You'll be sent back to the penitentiary in New Mexico. Wow. We'll be back. We'll be back in a little while to find out who saw something. That's incredible. <laughs> That's a good way to get anyone to talk, I think. <laughs> right. And oh, so my gosh. I just got together and they decided who they, who was it that was, you know, who did this guy put in the prison? And they all got together and put their stories together. So they were somewhat consistent, some inconsistencies. But when you give convicts enough time to get their stories together, they're somewhat consistent. Right, so especially if they're together, right? It's the purpose of, of separating witnesses. That's why it was so incredible for me to hear that. That's the way that they did that. So, But, you know, I mean... I know you're both experienced in, in criminal defense. And um, if you give informants enough time, I mean, let's face it, informants are usually um, the most antisocial characters in the bunch who find a way to land on their feet, right? And um, the state did a very poor job of managing their in informants. And they had made promises that, were, that went unkept. And, you know, I had to say, I don't mean to paint with such a broad brush for all prosecutors, but most prosecutors don't think highly of prisoner informants. Well, they don't think of informants highly at all because they know at least as well as we do, right? They know um, that they're the most antisocial um, characters uh, in, the, in the process. And so they, they treat them usually um, cautiously, um, but they don't have much loyalty to them. And they'll tell them, oh, you know, Call my office anytime if there is a problem. And that's like, you know, that, that's just not the way it works. So the first time something, so a promise gets um, broken, what do you think they do? They started calling our office. Of course. And then um, grabbed an investigator and went to Talladega and started talking to the prisoners. And that's where we got this story about um, what had happened to the guys in Las Cruces uh, and then started fleshing that out. I mean, it, it, bottom line, it didn't, you know, the, the first case that we took to trial, we got convicted, but, and, and I have to say, I was stunned that they got a conviction. I was, I, I just couldn't believe it. Um, but we, we, we got, li got a life sentence. What, as it turned out, uh, in doing jury interviews, there were many jurors who, um, didn't believe the state informants. They, we had just done an excellent job of discrediting them. And it turned out that um, with the magnitude of the case, um, the, the jurors who were holding out for not guilty cut a deal on the penalty um, and said, all right, we're going to vote for, for conviction, but we're not going to vote for death. I'll just tell you that. I wish the hell I'd have known that. Uh, when I spent the next two or three weeks with sleepless nights <laughs> putting together our penalty phase. Sure. Right? Oh. Uh, but um, that's the way it worked. That they There were serious doubts about the guilt or innocence based on these. I mean, there was no physical evidence, for God's sake, you know, no, um, no pictures or anything like that. So all, it was all based on snitch testimony. Right. And like you said, uh, they're not the most credible witnesses in the no, world. Juries don't really put a lot of weight in, on their testimony. And uh, and none of the guys had given statements um, after, you know, none of the defendants had uh, given confessions that we had to challenge or not. So it looked like a defense attorney's dream. It was just that with all the pressure. Um, and I think that, I mean, you guys are experienced enough to know that we know what happens with death qualification. It rigs the, the, it stacks the deck in favor of a conviction because they're conviction prone. When you get, I mean, we lost a lot of jurors who said they were, they were excludable because they said, 
knowing what I know about the conditions there, there's just no way that I could be a fair and impartial juror. I know what these guys lived through. And no, I don't think I would. The state is responsible for the conditions. Um, I could convict them, but I could never give death in. And, you know, the defendants are sitting there at trial just watching the good jurors get sent sent out, right? And every study has shown that the, the, the jurors that are left uh, are conviction prone, that they don't require as much proof from the, the state before they convict. So we had, had conviction prone jurors that um, convicted, but no death. And within, a, we got a couple other, a couple other life sentences. And then the, the state's cases just started. I mean, the, there was a lot of pressure from the legislature. The legislature Legislators who had paid $3 million to support the, the prosecution were stunned that there were no life set, no death sentences, because that, like you said, everybody was doing life. And so um, the, the state just started folding its tents and offering giveaway pleas. Um, there, was that, there was only one guy, I think, who had any significant uh, additional time as a result of the prosecutions, a guy named Moises Sandoval. And Moises was killed in the after the riot. Wow. Um, I, I uh, didn't realize case. that. When, when was he killed? Um, yeah. I don't know that you can look it up, but Moises, you see Moises Sandoval. Um, Moises had uh, made some enemies during a riot. Yeah. Who, uh, fired him in a dormitory one time. He'd, he'd been convicted and sentenced to, I think, to a consecutive life or something like that. He was on appeal when he was killed uh, at PNM. I mean, was, he, was he one of your... Um, I didn't. He was one of the defendants. I didn't represent him. We had a conflict. In, in the, okay. uh, we had we had a, assistance from a number of out of state attorneys who helped take uh, co defendant conflict cases. And how many uh, defendants did you represent overall? Who were involved well, with the riot? Actually, um, in the teens, I guess, where we sorted out the conflicts. We had. Um, guys that were involved in the actual takeover who threw the fire extinguisher through the the glass that, that to take over and then in different homicides you know yeah i mean we had a dozen 15 i guess altogether that our office took and um, so for the special separate con Separate homicides, and we never would represent co-defendants. In sure, of course. Um, so how many attorneys were in the special defense program that they set up? There were actually um, four of us um, full-time in, uh, in the prison riot office. Wow. Special prison riot defense office. Wow. Just, but, you know... On one hand, we didn't know what we were doing in the sense that the death penalty had just come in and we got trained by lawyers from around the country who had done capital cases. And we had some expert witnesses. We had relied heavily on the work of Dr. Craig Haney, um, who, if you're familiar with this, the Stanford experiment, mm -hmm. um, that documented the effects of prison conditions on prison violence. Um, I credit him with the, the bulk of the way we structured our cases who helped us in our investigations, knew what to, to look for and what to examine witnesses on and what to present to the jurors. And basically how to put on a penalty phase as, as well as we could back then in, the, in really for New Mexico, the stone age of capital defense. Wow, that's incredible. So you actually had the expert on uh, on prison conditions that's amazing so and yeah, yeah we've definitely and, referenced yeah. it pardon me <laughs> we've definitely referenced the stanford prison experiment at least yeah. once or twice dr Haney was also an expert in jury selection he published um uh, studies on unconviction proneness and and what were the best conditions for individual vortar um helped us a lot with jury selection as well so i give him a bulk of the credit in helping us because like i said no, none of us had ever done a capital case before. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, I guess, I mean, that would make sense that he would be someone who would be um, an expert in both both fields and the psychology of both, you know, people inside the prison and then juries' feelings about, um, you know, 
those kinds of things. So that's that's yeah, I mean, basically the theory being that the state is responsible for the conditions. The state in this case had engaged in security practices, if you want to call them that, um, the use of snitches um, that resulted in uh, application of excess force. I mean, you know, they would pit one um, prisoner group against another and then let it be known who it was that had ratted them off. And, you know, we you've read this, the things about the gauntlet, about the physical abuse gauntlets that guys would crawl on their hands and knees and then the cell block three torture that was just, I mean, I, I hadn't seen, I hadn't seen the hole in the basement of cell block three before the riot, but as we were developing the cases, we did. And I don't know if you've seen the pictures, but these were, the, it was just, uh, I mean, I actually deputy secretary Ray Precunier that took us on a tour down there. That was uh, one of the worst experiences I've ever had in a, in a prison, and this was after the riot. This is after they cleaned things up, uh, and there were seriously mentally ill prisoners, um, psychotics, schizophrenics, who were locked in these whole cells that had no bunk. If they were lucky, they might get a mattress every once in a while, concrete floor, the old hole in the floor for the toilet that would get flushed once in a while. The way they would clean them out would they bring the fire hose down the tier and hose them down through the the bars but these cells also had um metal shutters and they could shut out all light and just leave these guys in these cold concrete cells with a hole in the floor without any clothes sometimes or just hose them down leave them in there and those were kind of, those were conditions after the riot right so you had guys who would be um the victims of use of informants um, prior to the riot, and they would be stuck in a hole. I mean, guys told us that they would receive the same kind of treatment, stuck without clothes on in, in these torture chambers um, where they would close the metal gates and, 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 and shutters and just leave them in there. They would lose all sense of time. It's horrifying. Uh, and, then, and then, you know, they know that the guy that's responsible for them being in there is over in cell block four, you know. What would you do if you had a chance to to get over there? Right. So yeah, um, that's a good question. Those were the conditions before and after, after the and, and you know I mean this is like I said when we used to do jury tours um, and we took them to cell block three, it was it smelled worse than the worst zoo you've ever been in. And that's uh. as we're living in, and it didn't get much better after the ride. It was this same thing? I remember when they would leave the the shutters up the the windows on the, the the tier open to the inside and they were they had a collection i mean i don't know when the last time the windows have been closed a collection of old food and feces stacked up on the windows um just dried you know that with the, that's where the fresh air would uh come in i mean this is these aren't pictures i saw it with my own eyes yeah. right with, with, wow like with the deputy secretary and like Ray, you know, couldn't believe it. I mean, I don't think he'd been down there and seen it before. I'm sure he, cause he was the kind of guy that was, he'd come in from California and was trying to turn things around and things really did get turned around when um, secretary Frankie took over. Um, but most of that was, you know, there were some riot trials still going on. You know, Mike Frankie had been a district judge and he'd done, uh, one of the one of the trials, but when he took over, things started turning around for a while, and uh, he was serious about compliance with the consent decree. Um, he would put a little notice in the paychecks with with uh, for employees on Fridays when they got their paychecks that said compliance with the Duran consent decree is a serious matter. Like you'll lose your job if you don't comply. With the consent decree, it hadn't been, it wasn't like that for a long time after the rot. But when Mike took over, things started turning around until they until they left office, and then and the Republican administration came in and backslid. And anyways, there's several years of history in that. But the point was that we did see some some market improvement after a while, um, but not for years after the riot. And when they finally closed down the the dormitories and get and got adequate staffing in. So I mean the set. Go ahead. No, yeah. So what what year did that start turning around? What what, what did when did you finally see some kind of 
significant change. It, it's in the mid to late eighties when you took over. Yeah, but several things were just horrific. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. Um, yeah, and so, in, I mean, kind of getting to your involvement, because you've been involved kind of every in every aspect of it. So you represented Dwight Duran um, prior to the, the riot, correct? Well, I wasn't appointed until after the riot. I was okay. a public defender. So it was back when Justice Daniels, Charles Daniels, David Friedman, I think were the first lawyers appointed back in um, before the riot. And and then my soon-to-be partner, Bob Rothstein, um, was also one of the lawyers. That's why when Bob, um, in 1983, I joined his firm and he was already in the Duran case. So that's how I got involved. Okay. Okay. I see. And, and then we hired, Dwight got out, and then Dwight was our investigator from 83 on um, until he died, actually. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, so he did quite a lot of work then. Um, I guess, can you can you tell us a little bit about Mr. Duran? Well, thank God, he, you know, he would tell you that he wasn't in the ride on the, he wasn't there the night of the riot, fortunately, he'd just gotten out. Um, but Dwight was the one that gave us credibility with prisoners, you know, and I mean, they were all distrustful of public defenders and private lawyers, but Dwight could meet with the uh, inmate committee and get us reliable information. Nobody would bullshit us. And on the other hand, Dwight would make it, make it clear to guys that they should not abuse the process that, you know, our file cabinets with legal materials were not to be used for housing shanks, you know, just to make sure that, that everything was run uh, ethically and legally. But Dwight was magnificent. And then in the, in the negotiations, when we were negotiating, changes to the consent decree or improvements. Um, Dwight was the voice of experience and knew what to look for and knew um, how to deal. And, and he had credibility with corrections because of his background. Um, just a, a real um, privilege to have worked with Dwight all those years during the, the, the negotiations. I mean, you know, the, 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 the first administration did not take the, the consent decree seriously. And the court was not giving us much backup at all. It was when um, when we finally got us, you know, Governor Anaya, when he got elected governor and he had agreed to have a special master appointed, um, Vincent Nathan from Ohio, who had experience in investigating things. Until then, um, it was just a... a, a, a a, a sham that they were doing anything to comply with the decree. They were, the, I mean, guards were still allowed to falsify records. I mean, that was one of the things that um, Mike Frankie did was that when he found guards uh, falsifying records on excessive force, some of the same guards who had been involved in the 76 to 1980 period are abusing prisoners and then lying about it in, in reports after the rut and Frankie caught them. And fired them. I mean, that was just a tremendous change in culture. But it took years to finally get to that point where people took that seriously. And that the federal court had a special master that was investigating things to to make sure that the the that the conditions weren't being whitewashed by the the previous um, you know, prison administrators. So yeah, that was when things finally started turning around. Right. So backing up just a little bit. So just for people who aren't familiar with the, the Duran consent decree, um, what are the what were the original terms? All right. Well, there's it's a little complicated because there were only two that um, ended up that after the riot, um, we got more consent decrees. I think prior to the riot, there was only legal access and one other. Um, there weren't a number of, of, uh, of important consent decrees in existence. When I talk about the important ones, I'm talking about um, staffing and training that had minimum numbers of, of guards per prisoner per unit, um, and then spe specified training for the staff, and then um, medical and mental health requirements. Those weren't in place. Um, we had uh, specific consent decrees there. 
And then classification, uh, where inmates would be housed. Then most importantly, restricting the use of solitary confinement uh, and place um, due process protections um, in the operation of cell block three. Uh, legitimate notice, the right to appeal. And when that was being overseen by the special master, we really cut down on the retaliatory use of solitary confinement um, by the administration. So most of those consent decrees weren't negotiated until after the riot. But as I said, the, the initial administration was just like, ah, oh, yeah, let's let's negotiate a deal. But with, they had no intentions of complying with it. And it took Governor Anaya and Mike Frankie actually to finally, and, and with the help of a special master to finally get them to comply with those specific uh, uh, protections that um, the lawyers had negotiated. Right. Okay. So, and it sounds like there was just this culture um, in DOC that allowed for th this kind of behavior by the guards. Otherwise they wouldn't have done, continued doing the things well, that they were doing. Funny. I mean, some of the same administrators, I mean, you know, I don't know if he's still alive, so I'm, I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but there was a deputy warden who the prisoners were offering to turn all the hostages loose if they just give them a deputy warden that was in charge. And he stayed around after the ride. He went, you know, a lot of these guys, they got promotions up to the, the central office, right? The gut people who are responsible um, for um, the riot. I mean, Adolf signs got out pretty quickly. He didn't stick around. But um, same, a lot of the same characters carried over. And I think it was political support by the, the King administration back then. The, uh, these guys, their jobs um, with corrections and kept them there. Um, you know, there, I don't think there was anyone fired for what happened um, after, uh, you know, despite all the findings in the Attorney General's report. Um, nobody got fired. So um, there were no real consequences for any of the administration who was responsible for these conditions. No. Wow. No, really? Wow. Well, I mean, in that case, do you believe that, you know, with the conditions that were there and the the administration unwilling to comply with these court orders related to the grand jury investigations, do you believe that uh, riots are inevitable in those conditions? Well, they were. I mean, if, if you have that kind of um, continued abuse, physical abuse, retaliatory use of solitary confinement, yeah, that's going to create the kind of state of mind that was going to result in violence if there's any slip-up uh, insecurity. Um, we've only, fortunately, we've only seen that uh, occur a couple of times, a few times since 1980 in New Mexico. We had the horrible riot at Guadalupe County at Santa Rosa where a correctional officer was killed. Some of the same things that, um, that uh, an administration had taken over, I won't mention any names, but a correction secretary that didn't know what he was doing um, in, in supervising that place and putting known gang members together in an understaffed, uh, poorly trained um, staff running a prison and um, prisoners right in that situation. We had another disturbance down at Southern New Mexico. Um, you know, again, there weren't any correctional officers killed. We had some um, problems up at, uh, up at Clayton, um, but there haven't been, you know, I mean, fortunately with, you know, there's an incredible media attention even 40 years later um, when, when conditions are uh, brought to uh, public's attention. I will say one of the sad things that has occurred, and I, I don't remember who was responsible for it, but um, the state has eliminated the um, responsibility of grand juries to conduct walkthroughs and compile reports on jail and prison conditions, something that, uh, you know, I, I'd like to see the new Attorney General um, Torres with his, um, the Civil Rights Division see if we could get the legislature to recognize the mistake in keeping grand juries up because you saw those reports. It was report after report, but um, sometimes 
And I think now when grand juries talk, people listen if they have the opportunity to go in. But even, you know, in Santa Fe County, the, the county jail, the grand juries used to go through and we would get immediate re, um, remedial action from the county commissioners after having been through that. But now we don't have that oversight by um, grand juries. Um, and I think it's something the state ought to revisit. So how, so how long has it been since there's been a grand jury? Going. Uh, not in the last five years, I don't think okay. it's about five. How likely do you think it is that Raul's going to um, start doing grand juries again? Uh, well, he would have to get a statute, perhaps. So mm -hmm. we'd have to convince him. He's, he's, you know, he's a busy man. I like the direction that it's going. Um, but it's one of the things we're talking about. And hopefully in a, in a 60 day session, we could get support for a bill like that. I'm sure we could find. Uh, I, I can think of a number of, of legislators who'd be happy to carry that bill if we could get the attorney general uh, behind it. Right. Do you think I, like politically, like the climate right now would be in favor of changing prison conditions, especially after uh, COVID and kind of what we saw, the deplorable conditions that happened then? You know, I'm, I, I don't have a good sense of the, uh, public um, uh, perception of um, what the corrections department is doing. And, you know, my sense is that we're in, again, I mean, if you look at the last session and you look at uh, news coverage, you know, it's this um, focus on longer sentences and uh, the, fict the fiction about it's just a revolving door and you get charged with murder today and released tomorrow uh, without an ankle bracelet, you know? So I'm always you know, curious I, where those cases are. I've not seen one of them. So. I, I know. I, there was a, a lawyer quote who said she had 14 murder cases by contract and every one of her was in custody, right? I mean, it's just the way it goes. So I don't, I mean, you know, I've been doing this since the seventies and I've seen this, unfortunate cycle of it's only when somebody gets hurt that suddenly public attention focuses on the conditions, right? And they don't, they're not familiar with what we call the criminogenic effects of prison conditions on recidivism. I mean, there's so much written about that and people don't understand that if you're going to lock people up, it is got only for violent offenders, that when you send nonviolent offenders to prisons, you were, um, it's better than even that they are going to graduate to violent crimes because they lose every, their ability to function in, in society. Right. And so, I mean, I, I think that if, if uh, you see the cycles, when people get hurt, if people see what's going on, um, then they want to see the, the, the conditions improve, but they really don't understand that public safety means not sending people to prison, but it's only as, as a last resort in trying to use community resources. But I think that, you know, I mean, let's take a look at what happened at the riot. And I'm afraid this is what, what I've seen in these cycles. After the riot, um, the focus was not on who should, I mean, if you look at the attorney general's report, there was a citizens committee report at the same time. If you read the recommendations of the citizens report, and I've, I've I brought that to the attorney general Torres last year sometime, you'll find that those are the same recommendations that have been made every 10 years or so by another uh, legislative committee. After the, riot, after the riot at Santa Rosa, there was another study about um, what we should be doing to reduce prison violence. And it was like, well, it starts with not sending people to prison in the first place, right? Community resources, that's what you need. But what happened was there was, I was saying there was this unfortunate coincidence of, of New Mexico being awash in money. And instead of diverting the money to the community resources that the community um, uh, committee had recommended, they spent, um, uh, what they were spending a hundred million dollars on new prison construction. I mean, I think they, they my, my math, as I recall, they built the North and South facility, the South, the two solitary confinement units for $22 million a piece, $45 million for solitary confinement units that they ended up not needing. 
They didn't activate them for three or four years. By the time they activated them, the warranties were were gone on on the HVAC and oh. electrical systems, right? What a waste! And then they and they and you know uranium was disappearing. So they were throwing prisons at Grants, prisons in Las Lunas, prisons in Las Cruces that we didn't need at the time. That's where all the money went, and as a result. We built this prison monster that just generated violent criminals because, I mean, what happened, you know, as we saw, Duran for a little while was providing the resources necessary to make prison conditions tolerable. Um, inmate programming that required that every prisoner either be in an education course or vocational training or some kind of training for skills for release. As soon as that was vacated, that's the state pulled the skids out. All those, most of those programs, you'll find some here and there, but you won't find anywhere near 80%. You'll find 20%, 15% of the prisoners involved in, in programs like that. So we, we built concrete and steel monuments um, to the riot, and we built prisons that would never go down. They were, you know, in, in Duran, we did classification studies of the people that were in prison in, in, in the 80s. And all these classification experts said, you don't need these medium and maximum security prisons. You need low level, you know, yes, of course you need one, but you don't, for the most part, most of your prisoners are low to medium custody uh, and can be housed in, in uh, dormitory type settings or camp settings. Um, that's where, the, that's where the, the vast majority of prisoners back then sh uh, should have been housed. But instead, what we had were these high intensity high um, correctional officer staffed prisons with small pods with, um, you know, an incredible uh, ratio of prisoner, uh, of prison guards to prisoners that was unnecessary. And, and ironically, we ended up with, at one time, the most expensive prison system in the United States. Um, not because the resources were going to medical care, mental health care, or programming, but because of the security staffing um, that we were in. And we had prisoners, prisons spread out all over the place instead of using economies of scale. So, I mean, that when people say, why is the crime rate as high as it is? Well, you know, it starts with foster care. It starts with juvenile detention. But then all this money that you spent on corrections backfired and, and generated violent criminals because of what you were doing to people when you had them out. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I, I guess that, you know, as a criminal defense lawyer, how many people have you seen get better after prison? Uh, I think that the answer is when people get sent to prison, they have very few skills, very few um, ties to the community that they can rely on. And once you take the freedom, and that's this whole thing about it. Pre-trial detention. These are people who are on the margin, and when they get locked up, they lose their families, they lose any hopes for having a job, uh, and there they are when they come out. What are they going to do? I mean, it's exactly. just the same situation in prison. Only usually it's worse. I mean, I mean, this prison in Clayton was just such a mistake that they didn't need. They didn't need the beds, but they threw a prison up there for, because they wanted to give some jobs to the community, right? But you know what it's. You know how far prison uh, families have to drive from Las Cruces to see a loved one up in Clayton? I mean, it takes me forever from Santa Fe to get right. to Clayton. A lot of them don't have resources to be able to do that. And losing That's your family, I mean, just, you know, the mental harm that that causes is incredible. So, And then look, at I mean, the, the female experience, you know, um, what they did, getting off point here, but when they shipped all the women out to Springer, um, to um, because I, they just decided that that's what they were going to do. It made no sense at all. But all these are these are all mothers who have kids in Albuquerque, mothers who have substance uh, dependence, um, who are victims of sexual abuse. It's just a classic profile of the female prisoner and shipping them away from their kids up to Springer and just generating more violent criminals that the foster care system is going to pick up or that the, they're going to go to juvenile detention center. You see them there down in, I know Ahmad's office sees yes. these kids all the time. All the time. So, yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I mean, and I think that's that's a good, you know, segue into what we're we're heading into, you know, Women's History Month, and we we were covering prison riots, you know, unintentionally during Black History Month, but obviously, you know, there's definitely a racial component to over um, incarceration in this country, um, and so we we ended up focusing on um, on this prison riot in New Mexico, um, even though it's it may not be, you know, the most greatest example of of um, that issue, but um, in your experience, um, what do you? What is your thought on um, mass incarceration and and the racial component of it? Good, good question. Because as you were talking, I was thinking that I've been asked so many times: Did New Mexico learn any lessons from the prison riot? Right, and they learned, you know, chapter one, but they didn't. They didn't get the next nine chapters that they should have. Of course, one of the lessons is if you don't have um, uh, humane conditions that prisoners are likely to engage in violence. But the lesson that we should have learned was the second half of the Attorney General's report. You don't really need mass incarceration if you divert resources up front. And, and that's the lesson we should have learned. Was And, and instead, we, as I said, we wasted the opportunity with $200 million, I think, in new prisons, new concrete and steel, instead of um, children, youths, and families uh, yes. in, in increasing the resources for um, mental health counselors in grade schools and juvenile detention facilities. That was the lesson we should have learned. I still haven't, <laughs> apparently. Still um, have yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately. No, there was, I don't know if you saw it. I'm, I'm getting off point, but... There were two op-eds in the journal on uh, on Sunday, and they said, you know, the legislature had been, been criticized for not passing so-called public safety bills, but in fact, they had a number of public safety measures, and it comes to it, it was directed at housing and and um, work skills, um, workforce uh, funding, um, and mental health services, behavioral health services. Those are public safety measures that will pay off in the long run. Um, there's no quick fix or silver bullet for, for violence, but we know that, that the, the increasing the penalties for second degree murder. And, you know, I, you know, yes, there are some firearms things that would help, but that is not, I don't care. All those firearms bills could be signed into law tomorrow. You, you, you wouldn't deflect things much at all. We know that because the, 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 with the the more guns than there are people on the streets, with the people who are the product of our the mis uh, the, the with the diversion of resources from the services those people needed um, to prisons, um, the the criminals of the future and the guns are out there. That's just sad fact of of not having uh, spent money the last 20, 30, 40 years the way we should have. Yeah. So yeah, it's in the pipeline. We're gonna we're gonna be paying the piper for a long time. <laughs> So that equation changes. Yeah, that's that's frustrating and and hard to hear. Um, so, I, I mean, do you do you think that there is any hope for for change in the future that will be? I, I mean, I think we have to change as a culture, but you know, I I'm in a I'm trying to find a way to say that I'm hopeful. Um, there are these cycles. <laughs> no, here's the thing: I've been appointed to. Um, Governor Richardson appointed me to the Corrections Department transition team. Um, and that was a, a reform-minded administration. And the Corrections Secretary then, Joe, Joe Williams, had some people that put together reports about the direction the corrections should go. Um, and I was hopeful that that was the direction we're going to go. This governor just hasn't, and, and this Corrections Secretary have reversed course. I mean, it's just back to the status quo of prison as incarceration and confinement and not sending the message. You know, you see what the governor, the governor's criticizing the legislature for what they didn't do. And it's like, well, what was it that you were proposing that was going to improve public safety, right? So, you know, where is the political will to take on the unpopular message of saying, you know what, we've been spending money in the wrong direction. We, we can't, we don't have a quick fix. We can't make the streets safe quick. I mean, if the governor's out there, people don't feel safe. We've got to do something. Yeah, but what's your proposing? Is it going to 
reduce crime significantly at all. Right. But you had an opportunity, you know. Um, I mean, like when Governor Cuomo in New York, the first Governor Cuomo, um, was uh, the governor, he could take on these reform messages and explain it to people, and get behind, and with credibility explain that. And until you see a reform-minded correction secretary and a governor that can get out front. And, and, you know, we're still running scared from the Hollywood video from 20 some years ago, the, the old Willie Horton bullshit about, you know, one guy gets out too early and kills somebody and we're going to retaliate by locking more people up for longer periods of time. You know, and um, uh, one of the things that one of the reasons I'm not hopeful about this, there, there was a reform minded legislature in place in the 90s. Um, that put some put a, a great uh, community correction statute in place. And most people don't know this, but the vast majority of prisoners are eligible for release into community corrections 12 months before their parole date. Um, drug offenders 18 months before. And that was being used, all right? So you're minimizing the criminogenic effects and getting people into community resources. That was what the legislature had intended back in the 90s when I was hopeful that, you know, we'd learned the lessons of the ride. Now we had money. And what happened was, the, the, the I don't know if you're old enough to remember Hollywood video, but there was a, a woman who was in the, the community corrections program. She was a, a cocaine offender who had been released prior to her parole date in community corrections. And she was one of the people that lined these people up in um in Hollywood video on their faces and shot them on the floor. And everybody was going, well, what was, you know, why did this person get out so early? And it was Governor Johnson at the time said, well, I'm going to suspend the program. And they haven't used it significantly since then. But it's, the idea was that you were going to have community transition programs prior to parole um, for substance defendant people, for people who had uh, diagnosed mental disabilities or, or mental illnesses. Um, that, that that's where the money was going to go into community corrections. And then we wouldn't have to build more prisons. The numbers showed it. We didn't need Clayton. Instead of putting money in, in community corrections, we built the prison um, 200 miles from nowhere up there, right? So, but this statute's on the books. Will this governor, would this governor um, divert the resources from running Clayton? No, she took over Clayton. And it still isn't using community corrections the way it should be used, to eat, especially for nonviolent offenders, to get them out 12 to 18 months prior to their parole dates um, into community-based resources. Um, you know, and until there's a, a reform-minded governor um, and corrections secretary who can articulate this, because believe me, there are legislators out there too, but they're they're all running scared that if if they don't support. Look, you know, a lot of them are going to face heat for not getting these gun proposals. Again, I, I'm not arguing against these gun proposals, but for not getting these through and not get, getting the electorate to understand that's not what's going to make your uh, community safe. It's up front um, in in foster care and juvenile detention. Right. Uh, and minimizing the criminogenic effects of incarceration. Right. I mean, I guess the way that I've always thought about it is that, you know, you, you can't just put people away in a box and they're just going to disappear forever and you don't ever have to worry about them again. These people have to be released and they have to be, you know, re returned to society. And don't you want a better society? And to do that, you have to invest in those people and you can't just do it by throwing them away. It's, it's you're, you're extinguishing any hope that I had, Brittany, by reminding me that <laughs> I, I was a public defender when I was the first, you know, a lawyer in 1976. Mm -hmm. And I was, after being a public defender for about two years, I was in Albuquerque. I reached the conclusion that um, there ought to be like two sentences um, on the books, one for up to 18 months. And if you were going to put anybody, somebody in prison for more than 18 to 24 months, you might as well have a life sentence. But it just, there was no in-between, right? Mm -hmm. It was just like, if 18 isn't enough, quit wasting your money. That's the, that's the whole point. It was, and that was, you know, with those short sentences and community-based programs, you have a chance. But that's just, once yeah. they're in for two or three years, forget about it. Exactly. It's just 90% recidivist rate. And they're most likely to commit 
violent offenses when they weren't violent before. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's incredible. Yeah, talk to you now. <laughs> well, I think my my only last question is the status of the Duran consent decree today. Um, well, what, okay, is it, what does it look like? Yeah, I mean, there was a in the late '90s, Congress passed um, the Prison um, Litigation Reform Act (PLRA). Uh, and it basically um, cut the legs off of uh, institutional reform in federal courts. It, it eliminated, for the most part, um, the jurisdiction of federal courts to really enforce injunctive relief with the resources that we had before. They cut the attorney's fees. They made it impossible to get expert witness fees um, and then placed severe restrictions we, on um, consent decrees for the length of consent decrees. And that's in, when that happened, we were in the position of having to cut our losses and negotiate a tail out of the consent decrees. I mean, had the consent decrees stayed in place with the money the legislature had, we could have, you know, if to this day, we would have vocational training um, for, for every prisoner, right? But because of PLRA, the the Duran consent decree got gutted. Um, and the only thing that's remaining now is a population cap. That's the only thing that's been upheld by the courts. Um, there's some uh, minor agreements about trying to population control measures, like making sure that people get their parole plans to the parole board in time to get them out on time, you know, that sort of thing. But there is no significant institutional, I mean, all the medical care, mental health care, use of solitary confinement, staffing and training, all those orders uh, have been vacated. There's no longer any Article Three federal court power um, to make sure that New Mexico has constitutional prison conditions addressing um, prisoner safety, medical care, mental health care. Wow. So, so no yeah. hope. <laughs> that's, that's a good note to end on. <laughs> I'm not feeling super hopeful no. right now. <laughs> right. Oh, well, I mean, I, I think that's just, you know, that's a call to people everywhere to, you know, just invoke as much change as you possibly can. And so, I mean. You know, where my hope is, it's seeing people um, your age involved in this that are going to take the baton and fight as hard as you can to try to get things back on track. That's what makes me hopeful when I'm working with younger lawyers who, who have the message to send and, and that you have this kind of access to people. That's my hope that um, will affect some people who will join the, the cause and help turn things around in the future. Well, on, well we, we can't do it without your wisdom. So, I mean, I, I can't personally thank you enough for being here, for imparting that wisdom on us and, um, you know, fangirling a little bit here. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Seriously. Appreciate it. Yeah. Appreciate the opportunity. Mm -hmm. Good luck. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Okay, well, Derangers, that was our special interview with Mark Donatelli regarding the 1980 prison riot at the New Mexico State Penitentiary. He was super involved. His stories were so fascinating when he was talking about how the inmates who were responsible for some of the more heinous murders and trying to determine who was responsible for what murders it really reminded me this is the closest thing i had as a personal injury lawyer but it really reminded me of this one dog mauling case i had a little girl was mauled by i think nine dogs um, all of them owned by various people, different people. Some of them were strays, but all these dogs gathered together and, um, and unfortunately attacked this little girl. I was in insurance defense at the time, and one of my biggest defenses was, how do we know what dog did what damage? And honestly, the only dog they could really hold responsible was the one that left a, a tooth in her scalp.
and oh, wow. the ones, yeah, the ones that actually had like blood on their muzzles. There were several dogs that didn't have blood on their muzzles, um, and you couldn't really tie them to the attack. And so our defense was the same thing. Without photographic evidence, how do you even know these dogs were involved? There's no blood on them. They haven't broken their teeth off into her skull. Right. So, no physical you know, evidence. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly. that's what you that's what you hope for in criminal defense. Is no physical evidence. Right. <laughs> Right. No evidence. That's always great. Yeah. And, I mean, those are my favorite we, cases. Right. We couldn't call up the dogs to have them testify or anything like that. But um, it was definitely interesting how the same sort of idea applied to the inmates who were committing these atrocious murders. Like, how do you hold who responsible for what? And and you're you're basically taking the word of other inmates and they're not known to be the most credible trustworthy sources so it's wow i was so shocked by his stories they were so fascinating and and really that's it for this week i mean he covered most of the aftermath i think better than we could oh absolutely yeah i mean i, I think that was a really good wrap up and i'm so glad that we were able to have him on uh, at all uh but for him to give as much of his time as, as he did um, and as much information uh, and, and wisdom that he had was, was really special. Um, I, right. I just have to say about your dog bite case that, you know, we all in law school wanted the, the dog bite case and I think you got it. <laughs> I got it. I got it. It was so good. I loved that case. I know that sounds really sick to say, but like I actually really enjoyed dog bite cases. When I was in insurance defense, I frequently had the dog bite cases thrown to me. Usually I wasn't so lucky that it was like a whole mauling by like a gang of stray dogs. Like it's usually a controlled bite by a dog on a leash. And it's like, well, you're kind of at fault for your dog, bro. Don't yeah. know what to say. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was kind of like a slam dunk sort of case in that in that scenario. But um, yeah, for the defense at least, yeah. not for the plaintiffs. Yeah, not so much. Which you feel so badly because you're like, this little girl deserves money for sure, like from someone but not my dog owner. Right. So, I mean, and that's the problem you're often faced with in insurance defense, which is why I switched to plaintiff work because I just, I don't want to work against people. I want to help people. And so um, that's where I'm at, but I don't want to do that anymore. I want to be a podcaster forever. So everyone <laughs> listen, listen to our podcast. We need so many more listeners for that to happen. So many more, so <laughs> many more. So please tell everyone, you know, yes. um, but, but yes, so join us next time. We are going to be talking about the Attica prison riot. And the reason why is it's going to tie all of what we've been talking about with the New Mexico State Penitentiary riot with like a pretty little bow. Uh, we're going to learn about how the Attica riot um, not only impacted um, racial relations within the prisons, uh, but also how it directly led to the New Mexico riot. So um, we'll talk about that next week. Uh, well, no, this week, because no episodes last week, two episodes this week. So we'll yeah. talk about that later this week, and you'll get your double dose of prison action. Yeah, I was about to call it. That's bad. Don't call it prison action. I was going to call it a double bang, and I was like, okay, well, no, we're, no, we're fired. We're fired. You know we, we should just. Yeah, let's just call, let's call it. Let's just sign off after we um, remind everyone to like, subscribe, and follow us on all those socials. And until next time, stay out of law school and the infirmaries. Remember to like and subscribe to Deranged DeJure on your favorite podcast platform and follow at deranged.dejure on all the major social media. Contact us by email at deranged.dejure at gmail.com. This has been a Raven Kink production. <laughs>